One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, last Friday was the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and it marked the launch of the Unite campaign, an initiative of 16 days of activism, concluding on the day that commemorates the International Human Rights Day, the 10th of December. So it's running for 16 days, and to mark this, we want to bring you a bonus episode to tell the story of a wonderful women-led initiative that came from the county of Clare. The story of Clare Haven and Haven Horizons has been written down in a book called Light on the Horizon and it tells the story of how small acts of compassion ignited an enduring community response to relationship abuse. Clare Haven was started by Colette Reddington and Mary Fitzgerald but unfortunately Mary is seriously ill and could not be with us but we did get to talk to Colette Reddington, co-founder of Clare Haven and Haven Horizons and Madeleine McAteer, Research Training and Development Director of Haven Horizons. When they began, there was no refuge and no services for victims of domestic violence in County Clare. So Colette and Mary first brought women into their own homes and organised B&B accommodation for them. And later on, they secured a house that could accommodate one family at a time and Clare Haven was born. And they later set up Haven Horizons, which, as I said, is an education and research centre. As we know, one in four Irish women has been abused by a current or former partner. And after 20 years of their incredible work, there continues to be a huge demand for the frontline services. So there's an awful lot to talk about with Colette and Madeleine, um, including their level six certificate that they developed for frontline professionals, which is called Reflecting on and Responding to Domestic Abuse and Coercive Control. And I started our conversation by asking Colette to tell us about the origins of Clare Haven. Thank you, Roisin. Yeah, it's been a long time, hasn't it? 30 years. We just realised <laughs> that last year, you know, you think in decades, but you think, oh my God, this has been 30 years. And I suppose back in, in the 1990s, you know, there was, there was a silence around domestic abuse and violence in families. It's almost what was happening in a family was, was kept secret. And in a sense, I suppose women were trapped by those invisible chains, you know, very, there was very little spoken about in the media for sure. And Separately, myself and Mary were looking to help women who had come out of violent homes. And it was interesting. We didn't know each other, you know, in, in let's say, 1990, but we were literally working across the bridge from each other about 200 feet away. Mary worked in the Garza station and I was teaching in a school across the bridge. And, um, you know, I suppose we both look at what made us say we need to do something about this. For me, it was a young student who came into class one day. Um, I'd say she was about 14 and she didn't have her bag or books and she was really upset that she didn't have her homework but you could tell that something had happened you know she was upset Um, and later when the class ended she stayed behind and she just she said that herself and her mum and her little brother had stayed in the Garza station the night before Uh, and she was worried about her homework and I just thought what has she been through and she's worrying about her homework but um, later that day, I went over to the Garda station and uh, asked if the family who'd been there the night before had they somewhere to stay. 
And they actually told me, they couldn't tell me now, of course, you know, but they, they told me that they'd found a room in a, in a daft house for, for the family. So a little while later, I, w- I went to adapt where I met Maeve O'Brien Kelly, an amazing woman who had set up the refuge services in, in Limerick at the time, in the mid 70s, actually. And she said to me, Colette, you know, we have at least one family from Clare coming to us looking for help every week. And I was shocked by that. I was shocked by the numbers. And, and they, they were just the families who were leaving and, and getting as far as Adapt House in, in Limerick. Separately, of course, Mary, Mary Fitzgerald, was meeting families in the Garda station. She was meeting the families who were sleeping on the bench. And again, she was trying to find accommodation for them. So she went to Adapt as well. We got connected. She wrote me this beautiful letter. Do you remember that lovely Basil and Bond notepaper? It was blue and you could mm. nearly see through it. And Mary has beautiful writing and she said she'd heard that I was doing something and she'd like, she'd a little bit of money and she'd like to put her shoulder to the wheel. And I thought, oh no, I hope this isn't a pensioner who wants to give me her money. And I said, oh, but I'll meet her. And of course I met Mary and we started to look for just one house. We sort of said, I suppose we were naive really, you know, if we can, if we could find one house and help one family, that'd be something. So we started to look, that took a while. We, we got a lot of refusals, as you can imagine, once people knew what we wanted to do, that we were bringing in families from Adapt House. And then, as always happens, you meet the mentors and the champions along the way. And we met a lovely family, Pat and Greta Downs, who agreed to rent their little terraced house right in the middle of the town. And, and there you go, we got started. We started taking in one family at a time. But we didn't realise that, you know, we had to stay with them because the families were vulnerable, you know, and, and their partner could come and find them. So we stayed with them. Groups of friends stayed in twos. We stayed at night. And our only security system was putting furniture up against the door. Wow. I mean, I'm just listening to you and I just think in 30 years ago, it does sound very ad hoc and kind of you said, use the word naive. So you, you, you forgive me for saying it again, but kind of like you saw a problem, you wanted to help with it. And in, in a normal, very ordinary way, you went about trying to do it. I suppose not realizing all the issues about security and all those things that needed fixing because there wasn't anywhere for families to go. Would that be right at that time in Clare? There was nowhere. No, there wasn't anywhere. And that's that's what we began to realise. And and you're right, there's a, a, a strong element of naivety. But Roisin, the big thing that made the difference is, I suppose, when we opened the door in that first little house, we didn't realise that we were opening the door on a huge societal issue. When you look at the figures that we now know today, that one in four women experience some kind of abuse in their relationships. But we were so lucky we met these people on the way. And um, the... After we met that lovely family who rented the house, um, Jerry Brennan and his family from Dublin said, look, we'll pay the rent and the telephone bill. And actually, Jerry remains involved in the in the organisation to this day. Then we met Madeline. And of course, Madeline is here and she'll tell you herself that was that was another sort of turning point along the way. So Madeline, you come in here, it was 1995, I think, when you, you got roped in. Is roped in the right word or were you very, very uh, enthusiastic? How did it happen? A combination of both, I'd say. It really was, as you said, um, there wasn't any services at all in County Clare and Women's Aid, which had also set up in the mid-70s. Um, they decided to take a bus, they called it the Women's Aid Bus Project, to nine rural towns in Ireland that didn't have any services. 
And I had come to Ennis um, just a couple of years before. And um, when that bus came to Ennis in 1995, I suppose it really did change my life. Um, that's where I met Colette at the planning sessions. So they had looked for uh, groups and local people to organize the training session that was going to happen in the evening and to get audiences to come to that. So um, we didn't really know what to expect, but when the bus came into Ennis, it parked in the middle of town and it was emblazoned with the Women's Aid logo, a huge logo and all these all these stuff about domestic abuse on the outside. And they were in the middle of town handing out leaflets to people going by. And um, people were quite shocked by it. Um, and people were saying, but we, we don't have domestic abuse in Clare. That only happens in New York. And um, then we did get a lot of people turning up that evening. And um, and I was one of those people. And I suppose really, I thought I knew oh, domestic violence and, and what it was. But it, the, the presentation really opened my eyes to the the nature of gender-based abuse and domestic abuse, domestic violence in Ireland and then globally, you know, um, what was happening around the world, that this just wasn't a problem in one place. It was something that was happening everywhere. I suppose in a way um, it was the start of a journey for me and I became an accidental activist at that point. And then Colette brought me to meet Mary and that really uh, started the whole process then, yeah. I sometimes think accidental activists are the best because it comes from a very um, authentic place, you know, and a very real place. But what was your knowledge and expertise, Madeline, that you could bring to, to this sort of very, very beginning of an organisation? Well, at that point, I was what was then called a state registered chiropodist. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> doesn't sound like it did have much to do with it. <laughs> yeah, well, what what had really happened was that um, I had been living in Geneva and I had a young daughter. And of course, there was great facilities, great childcare. And I didn't know any different at this stage. So when I came to Ennis, I was totally taken aback by not only could you not uh, get community-based childcare, if you didn't know who was doing t- childcare, there was no way of finding out because there wasn't any register of childcare providers. And um, I put an ad in the paper, was anyone interested in looking into how to set up some sort of community childcare? And a few people answered. And so we got together. And at that time, I'm sure you remember, there was a lot of, uh, I suppose, the Combat Poverty Agency were funding women's groups and there was some funding available for initiatives, I suppose, around gender inequality. And we looked into how could we set up a community childcare scheme and a FOSS scheme seemed to be the way to do it. So we went through that whole process of setting up a FOSS scheme to set up a childcare centre. And then, of course, when we had that done, we realised, well, there are no childcare workers because there are no trained childcare workers because there's no childcare centre. So then we had to look at how would we bring in some childcare training and how would you set that up? So all of that experience then when Colette brought me to meet Mary and I found out that they had a house, you know, they needed staff, they needed resources. And I said, well, maybe you could set up a false scheme 
And they said, well, maybe you could help us do that. I remember <laughs> seeing that, Madeline. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's when I became a full-time activist because then I went through that whole process and getting all the, re- you know, looking at all the research and putting forward the proposal. And then there were there was uh, six community employment workers and a full-time supervisor. And then they asked me what I like to be full-time supervisor and that's how I got involved and wasn't it our incredible good luck Roisin that she wanted a break from feet exactly I mean she just wanted to get away from the old trotters and she got into this (laughs) instead Um, I'm glad to hear it was a community employment scheme actually because I would have started off on a community employment scheme in journalism like in a small tiny newspaper and the amount of different people who were there who kind of otherwise wouldn't have had jobs or were out of the labour market and it was a way to get back in. So it's a really, I think, very undervalued um, sort of schemes. These are that go around all over the country, do great work. I absolutely agree. And I think that comes through in the book as well. You know, the first six people who came on that scheme and the way that they, um, I suppose, flourished and blossomed when they were, you know, and we all got opportunities to. And one of the big things was that, we constantly were training and looking out what was out there, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, what what were the models of good practice that we could bring back and implement here, you know, in Clare and then in Ireland. So tell us about the um, refuge actually being built. It was opened in 2002 by Mary McAleese, I think. Was it a big ordeal to get it done or did it all just happen? Well, you know, there were years of fundraising, you know, um, optimistic fundraising with church day collections and flag days and all of that. Uh, And you think you can build a building with that, you know, even back in the 90s. But we, again, really good luck. We met uh, Father Pat Coogan, who sadly passed away recently. And he he was one of the co-founders of Respond, the voluntary housing agency. Uh, And he worked with us. So that meant we could work with a team of architects and designers and we could get that refuge built, that first refuge built, which was a six bedroom unit with nothing to put in it. There wasn't a stick of furniture with no staff. So but we got to that stage. So it, it was all a set, a set of milestones. And in the meantime, moved office. Madeline built up an amazing team. Uh, some of the original FOSS workers that started in those early days are still working with Clarehaven Services now and, and are lifelong friends. And just to say here, Madeline and Mary Fitzgerald and myself, we now work exclusively with the second charity, the intervention and prevention one, which is Haven Horizons. So there was a long number of years of building up, doing workshops in schools, training with the Gardaí and so on, building up our own skills, I suppose, and and eventually opening that refuge. In a sense, it was firefighting and a sort of crisis management in that the refuge was invariably full. And then you get a call to accommodate another woman and we'd have to look around for somewhere for her to stay. And then maybe there'd be an incident that would happen where a partner would come to the refuge. They were violent. The Gardaí were excellent. They'd come very quickly. But we had very little time to do one of the things that we'd said in the early days. And that was about changing the perception of violence and and educating people about the myths around violence and particularly with young people. You know, in the early days, we had done some workshops in schools. And I suppose because I was in a school myself and I had daughters in that school, I heard the feedback. You know, you always get the feedback when you have your girls are in the school. But we were doing workshops in the local schools and we saw how effective it was. 
that they were beginning to identify patterns of behavior in boyfriends, you know, controlling, not wanting them to talk to their friends, being critical of their friends, controlling where they were going, but telling them like it was because they were beautiful and everybody would want to be with them and they would sort of look after everything, you know, all those controlling things that can happen in a relationship. And initially, you know, as as the girl said, they, they felt flattered by it. And this was love. This was first true love, you know. So that was our first hint. And the book goes into that in quite some detail about the the effectiveness of education and why we needed to do more of it. And so in those mid 90s, as Madeline said, we started to look further afield, saying people must have done stuff that is effective. And so she went to Duluth to look at where there was a really good model of practice there. And uh, she came back a change woman. Madeline, tell us about that, because that's about the expansion of the services, I suppose, and into Haven Horizon and looking at really the underlying cause of of this violence. And what was it that you discovered and how did that change your your life going there? Yeah, um, I had heard Dr. Ellen Pence uh, speak in Dublin and she was one of the co-founders of what was known as the Duluth model. And that was now it's an award winning model and they're uh, it's all around the world, really. And I suppose it was extraordinarily effective because it focused on closing the gaps in the justice system and um, the justice system's response to domestic abuse. And it was called a coordinated community response. So everybody who was involved in responding to either victims or perpetrators were working together uh, with two, I suppose, main aims to keep victims safe and to hold perpetrators accountable. Both things have to happen. And like here in Ireland, um, even the Duluth model evolved over time because in one year they had, um, I think, about 15 or 16 homicides in St. Paul due to domestic abuse. And so the legislator in St. Paul asked Ellen Pence to come there and to look at what could be done. And so the Duluth model was looked at and then it was really fine-tuned and it it became what's now known as the blueprint for safety. And um, in St. Paul, uh, for two years after they introduced the blueprint for safety, there were no homicides. It's about looking at the systems. Where are the gaps in the systems that allow these tragedies to occur? And there is a, a methodology and Um, a safety and accountability audit that you do to identify the gaps and then you put the practices in place to close the gaps and everybody works together. Colette, you mentioned there the importance of education a little bit um, and how you were finding that from from schools of what, what young women were saying. But talk to me a bit about the way that we educate and socialize boys and men plays a part in all of this because I think that's something that we're starting to understand or try to address a lot more. I see that um, Richie Sadler just won an award for his book, Let's Talk, which is addressed to young boys and, and men about relationships and everything like that. But I think we've kind of failed, I think, probably boys and men over the years um, in, in not talking to them about these things and, and helping them understand relationships and how they work and, and how they should work. A very good point, Roisin. And, you know, I often think when you hear some of these cases coming up to the courts and, and you know, an abuse case, I think of the mother of that man, you know, did she ever think when she was holding that little baby that this is the life he was going to be having, that this is what he would be doing to women, you know? Um, and, and you're absolutely right, not just in schools, but as parents, 
as parents of young people, boys and girls, we need to be having that conversation with them. And you know the way you have the best chat in the car when you're dropping them somewhere? Isn't that the, the great place to have the chat? Because they don't like the big talk. But, you know, for boys, like, what does consent mean? What does being too possessive mean? You know, can you pick anything up from your son that there's an element of that going on? For your daughters, you know, what are the red flags? And certainly my own grown-up daughters have have told me about red flags that they've had. Um, and, and as we said, you know, that over-controlling boyfriend, the one who's checking your texts, they're being critical and you find that you're not meeting your friends anymore, you know. And of course, social media now, he's got access to you and he's, sent, he's bombarding her with texts and flattery, but it's mixed up. So she's totally confused by it very often. So if we can, as parents of young people and in the educational system and through the work that Madeline is doing with the professionals and the third level system, that we can educate young people to recognise those red flags early. And for, for people who have a tendency to be abusive, they're not born. I mean, what happens that you become like that, that they learn to identify their own behaviour and it, at least recognise it, that that goes one step towards it. And, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, you look at turning points in, in this 30 years, uh, which are outlined in the book. And one particular type of story that really I found heartbreaking was older women waiting for her children to grow up before she looked for help. And and one of those stories is is told by a lovely lady in the book called Norma. And, and, and actually, I remember... You know, maybe we might have been 20 years at this and I saw a woman in a, in a lovely red coat walking on the outskirts well outside the town uh, with just her handbag. And I noticed her, but, you know, I, I, I passed her by. And later that evening in the refuge, she was there. And she said that she had said she would leave by the time her children had finished school, finished college, and she had a chance to go. And that became a pattern, you know, where... It took a long time to leave. And the second turning point was around that time, we, I remember we had a lovely lady who, st- who stayed in the refuge in the early days. And nearly 20 years later, her daughter came looking for help. And that was, that was a light bulb moment. And, I, and Mary and Madeline and myself used to meet at lunchtime. Our three workplaces were, were very close in the town, so we could meet at lunchtime. And I remember just thinking, some, something has to change. We're filling the refuge Daughters are coming back. And you know that lovely saying, Roisin, Bishop Tutu, said, well, you can, you can just keep pulling people out of the river, but at some stage you've got to go upstream and see why they're falling in. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's where Haven Horizons uh, was born, really, and Mary Fitzgerald was instrumental in developing that as, as a charity and doing the work that we do today. What have you both noticed in the last few years? Because we know that, um, I mean, it's interesting you spoke earlier about the fact that it was kind of like, oh, that doesn't happen here. But we know that this has been happening in Ireland to women and, and girls for decades and decades. It just was something you mentioned earlier about the silence. But in the last few years, 
one of the things about the pandemic was people being locked in their houses with their abusers in a way that they couldn't get any escape. So for your services and and the the way you talk to the people who access your services, what did you notice yourself? Because we know that there was a big increase in domestic violence and calls to the Gardaí. Unfortunately, we also know that those the Gardaí didn't answer a lot of the calls and there was a lot of problems with that too. But what was your own um, observations about that time, both of you? I suppose when you think of COVID-19, um, it actually brought a, a focus to what was happening. The Gardaí actually put in place something called Operation Fushima. And what they did was they worked with the frontline groups frontline services on the ground to ensure that women knew that the restrictions didn't apply to them and a higher priority was given to domestic abuse calls and that women could leave their home and they could seek refuge and that the response would be there for them. And I know from a lot of the frontline services, from the professionals that are on the level six course that I'm running for, uh, frontline professionals, it's an interagency course and There was a lot of conversation about this saying that it was almost like sometimes the only people out and about were Gardaí and frontline domestic abuse workers who could go and meet women or women could come and meet them. And um, that did create um, a much better relationship and a much better response to women. And that whole issue of some calls not being answered really speaks to um, what I would think about the blueprint for safety, that it was a systems problem and the system didn't pick up the problem. But the frontline domestic abuse workers knew that some calls weren't being answered. But some guards, like the inspectors for domestic abuse, the inspector for domestic abuse, didn't know that. So there's a breakdown in trust, but it was because of a very small minority and the system didn't pick up the problem and it was allowed to continue. And and I think um, if that gap is closed and the trust builds between frontline agencies and they have this coordinated community response, that's what will change the ability to keep women safe, as I was saying, and the ability to recognise perpetrators and to hold them accountable. Not all perpetrators are the same. And this is what confuses people. So you have perpetrators that that are recognisable. They're angry, they're lashing out, their emotion, they're very reactive, angry. And so they're lashing out and their emotions are congruent with their actions. But there's another type of perpetrator that people are describing in lots of ways, this charming man, this pillar of the community. And Perhaps there isn't even violence, but behind the scenes is what we now have, the new offence of coercive control, highly controlling, micromanaging, threats, uh, wanting to um, have complete control over what a woman does, who she sees. And so but that, that the beginning of the relationship, it's very much exactly what's being described uh, with the young people, the red flags they were recognising. So with with coercive control, it's very confusing. And we hear the term as well, gaslighting. And it's that sort of psychological abuse. And, and what's interesting is when I hear the term gaslighting, I remember watching the 1944 film Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I know about it, though. Yeah. 
And when I was young, I remember it, it really had a big impression on me. And it was this older man who did this love bombing and rushed this young girl into a relationship. And of course, there were sinister reasons behind it. Um, and, you know, they went back home to London where she was from. And the film got its name from there being gaslight and that the light in the living room kept dimming and he kept denying it and she kept losing things and he would accuse her of things. And she became completely um, distressed, a breakdown and convinced that she was going crazy. And this is something in my level six course, I use real life case studies and it's it's almost a mirror of what was in that film that when you look at a couple where there's coercive control, often the perpetrator looks calm and so his behavior doesn't mirror, mirror his actions. So that's very confusing for the victim. It's very confusing for the frontline professionals. And even recent research from Australia said that 49% of um, perpetrators of homicide, well-educated highly functioning elsewhere in their lives, uh, but highly controlling. And so the victim may not even have been aware of the risk she was at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Chapter 31, I think it is, of your book talks about um, a watershed moment, and you're referring to Ashling Murphy and Tullamore in January earlier this year um, obviously a huge moment Ashley Murphy was was killed and there was calls then for for change for discussions about violence against women Helen McEntee has since announced a kind of an action plan against it, the Minister for Justice you know and these these moments can be be turning points but they can also be times when we just talk about it a lot and then we go back to the way it was where, where this the silence resumes how do you feel about it? I mean, you obviously wrote about it in the book. So what, what, Colette, what do you think about the death of Ashling Murphy and how it maybe changed the conversation? It certainly did, you know, and, and you could see a similar conversation happening in England with the death of Sarah Everhart the year before as well. And I'm sure, you, you know, in towns all over the country, there were vigils. Uh, we did, we was here in Ennis as well. And there was really an outpouring of not just sympathy and huge sympathy for the family uh, and friends of Ashling Murphy, but also it started the stories that so many women had of experience of being followed, of being stalked, of being assaulted, and it it took over the media for the next the next few weeks. And what we were afraid, I suppose, we 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 just thought this can this can disappear again. It'll be a media moment and it will be gone again. But interestingly, in light on the horizon, we were coming to the end of writing the book at that stage and so well written by Pori Karen and Madeline as co-authors. Um, and th- that was kind of a watershed moment. We said, we're finishing here. But we thought 
a lot of work has been done. There's so much more that has to be done. And when you look at what's happening in different countries around Europe and internationally, and the rollback, the erosion of women's rights, and Roshan, you've spoken to people recently um, in Iran and, and the courage of women there to speak out, knowing that they could be imprisoned, they could yeah. die, they could disappear. Um, whereas here, people were coming out in the streets. I suppose it was an anger, it was a voice, it was, a, it was the voice of men and women everywhere saying, this is enough. Yeah, and um, I suppose, Roisin, um we put that title in with a question mark after it for those very reasons. This is the title, A Watershed Moment. Yes, you had a, a question mark at the end of that, wondering, is it a watershed moment or not? The Zero Tolerance Strategy, it's the third national strategy in Ireland and it's um, based on a response to the Istanbul Convention, which is the International Convention on Gender-Based Violence. And that, that convention has four pillars and our strategy is mirroring that. But I think that unless we have that systems approach, I mean, we can deal with individual cases and problems, but unless we actually tackle it at a systems level, and when you think of the bigger picture and the number of different areas that have to be addressed, uh, right down from, you know, the experience of the victim right up to our, our court systems, unless we have something like the Blueprint for Safety, and unless we have training at all levels, um, and interagency training that is is looking at um, the domestic violence myths, which of course are what sustain domestic violence and abuse in any society. And of course, the stronger the adherence to domestic abuse myths, the higher the level of domestic abuse in a society. And similarly, world indexes would show the higher the level of gender inequality the higher the level of domestic violence and abuse. So we have to tackle this on a number of different fronts. And so we used to always talk about gender-proofing every policy that was developed and poverty-proofing every... But we seem to have lost that language and that idea, but I think that needs to come back. And I think we really do need to bring in models of good practice from other countries. And, I mean, on the other hand, there are lots of really good things happening um, new laws being brought in. The fact that the offence of coercive control has been brought in has allowed a whole new conversation to happen about the nature of domestic abuse um, and that it's not always um, physical violence. Um, and we have had a number of new laws uh, being brought in, laws on stalking, laws um, on um, non-fatal strangulation are coming in, laws on image-based abuse. So each of those is closing a gap and that needs to happen. But as I say, the the systems approach... It's about connecting. Connecting the dots and closing the gaps, yeah. And that, that's it. Mm-hmm. And you know, Madeleine is talking about coercive control there. Uh, there's a, another story in Light on the Horizon and wonderful women who, who've shared their story. And Joan describes how without broken bones or bruises how she became diminished and very small. And that, that really struck a chord, you know, very small to the extent that she was powerless in her relationship. And at the launch of the book, when we played Joan's story on a recording, 
it's been really interesting. The, the number of people that have come back to us and said, you know, when I heard that story or when I read the book, they actually went and read the book, which was great, that women are having this conversation about past relationships, their own relationships, and looking at them and saying, you know, I didn't recognize that then, but that was not healthy. What he was doing to me then was not healthy. And generally you can see it about past relationships. Some people said, actually, where I'm at, I need to change. And we've been struck by, I suppose, in in our friends group, people we know, the number of people that have said, not only on that night, but in the weeks since, that they are beginning to reframe their own personal relationships in light of reading this book, which is, is powerful, really. Finally, I'd just like to ask both of you about the book and what you hope the response is. It's, it's out there already. People are reading it. So both the feedback to it and, and what, what difference you hope, hope it makes to this really fraught um, thing that I know even people listening to this podcast are going through it at the moment. So um, hopefully we can get them to read the book and, and that it might help in some way. But what are your own hopes for the book? Well, you know, first of all, um, you know, just a big thank you to for the skill of writing for to Pori Karen and and Madeline for for creating the book. Uh, we thought it would just be chronicle the story, acknowledge the people, so many people along the way that had put their shoulders to the wheel. Um, but as Madeline said, it also chronicled the 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 change um, around the silence of tolerating domestic abuse for for women. If I was looking back, Roshina, I I would say. That, uh, that through education, let no young woman ever, ever experience this again, that she can recognize early on the signs, the red flags of controlling behavior and get out of there and not consign herself to years and years of a, of a controlling partner. And, and if you look forward, that no woman, no woman should spend her life hostage to an abusive partner. And what about you, Madeline, in terms of your hopes for, for this book and the hopes for uh, Claire Haven in the future, too, because you're you're building on your work all the time, I suppose. Yeah. So um, going on what Colette said there, I would also hope that if we can use that education, that there will be no young man, no young boy or no man that will feel entitled to behave in that way, that, that our society, of course, what we all want or what we all hope what we would have would be a more equal society in every way. And that would include, um, you know, gender equality and um, relationships that are based on equality. And I suppose really to say that, um, not to forget that there is uh, domestic violence and abuse in LGBT relationships. Men can be victims of uh, domestic abuse. Um, the majority of victims are in heterosexual relationships are females. But that we look across the board and we see the bigger picture and that we're addressing the issue from that perspective. And um, I suppose, you, you know, um, these changes aren't going to happen unless we're addressing it, I mean, at, at every level. And that's the challenge because it is such, it's a topic that touches on every aspect um, of people's, people's lives. Uh, as I was saying before, from the family they're born into right through to the bigger picture in society. And um, 
Yeah, it's really education, what? training and research. I suppose the response to domestic abuse is divided into three areas. It's divided into the primary prevention, which is the education, training and research. The secondary prevention is that there must be services there for victims in the emergency crisis and then longer term support for victims to move on and for perpetrators, you know, if they want to take um, advantage of uh, perpetrator programs and address their own issues and all of that. But to me, unless we put real resources into the primary prevention, where it's like what Ellen Pence said when I was in Duluth, it's about, you know, it's like sticky, putting sticky plasters on the issue because if, if you don't stop it happening, you're just going to have to keep dealing with it. Well, that seems to be that we, you know, there is a lot of talk about it, but I don't know how much of those resources that are so important that you, you talk about are there. Um, the book is called Light on the Horizon, so... Uh, maybe we'll leave it on some kind of an optimistic note. I presume that's why you called it that, because well, there are things to say that are hopeful. Yes, I, I do think so. I think that um, there have been a lot of changes in the last couple of years. I, as I say, I think there has been a lot of legal changes, a lot more um, interest in researching the area and um, a lot of changes in third level. And from the course that, you know, Madeline develops the course, Roisin, and delivers it here from our office, Mill Office in Ennis. And the request to run this course now uh, in different third level uh, institutions is, is growing. And, you know, we've got Gardaí, social care workers, court services, victim support personnel um, are, are doing this course. It's their their feedback that that we see. And I said, this is going to affect change. You know, you saying where's the hope? There is hope. There's light on the horizon. Uh, you know, somebody who's working in victim support said, you know, I now recognise in this woman when she's talking to me, I recognise that she is being coerced and she can't talk. She can't say it. She's feeling, you know, in that space. And as a staff, we, we're in a much better place to help her. The same with court services staff. You know, somebody said, I, I've really changed. It's not that they're hard hearted, but, you know, the court is the court. She said, I've changed how I deal with women when they come to the court services. Young students, social care students, they now are learning about this dynamic as well. And hopefully that will go forward in their work in the future. And it's through that it's, it's meaningful, impactful change. And it's happening through education. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. We're going to hear um, from Norma, her story now to close. But before we close, um, maybe you just tell us where everyone can find the book because there's a few different places. Yes, the, the book is available in most bookshops in Clare and it's available in The Winding Stair in Dublin. It's available in Charlie Burns in Galway. And uh, I think Charlie Burns, the Ennis Bookshop and the Winding Stair also provide an online service. If anyone wants to, they will post it to them. That's great. Well, I'm delighted to have spoken to you both about this really important issue. And thank you very much for the work over 30 years, which is incredible to stay the distance with something like this. But I can tell that it's almost like a vocation for both of you. And the passion is really uh, and you've both grown so much from it, too, and learnt and expanded your own knowledge and skills. So Madeline and Colette, thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to hear the story now of Norma. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you. As I turned the key to lock the door for the last time, I said, Dear God, I don't know where I'm going or what is going to happen to me. Please help me.
My name is Norma and this is my story. When my children had grown up and my daughter had finished college, I promised myself I would leave my violent husband by the time I was 55. I had packed a bag with a few belongings and hidden it under my daughter's bed, waiting for a chance when my husband would be away from home for long enough for me to leave. The physical violence went on for years. He threw dishes at me, had beaten me, blamed me for everything that was wrong in his life. When he pushed me against the kitchen door and tried to strangle me, I knew that the time had come. It was hard to know which was worse, the physical or emotional abuse. We had both worked and saved for our home, but I had no access to money because he controlled our joint account. I had approached some professionals over the years, some of whom did not believe me. One took my husband's side and warned me to be careful as my husband could have me committed to a psychiatric hospital. I met a very kind nun and confided in her. She gave me details of a group in Clare that was helping women like me. A friend helped to pay for the taxi to Ennis, which was far away from my home in the northwest. On the way, I posted letters to my son and daughter, telling them not to worry about me and that I would contact them when I was in a safe place. I didn't want my husband to put pressure on them to tell him where I was. I stayed in a bed and breakfast that night and made my way to Steele's Terrace, where I got a very kind welcome from Valerie. She listened to me, made some calls, arranged a visit with social welfare and said that I could stay. Over the next few weeks, I attended a support group organised by Clare Haven, where I met other women who had experienced domestic abuse like me. It was so therapeutic and such a relief to be heard. My confidence gradually grew. I volunteered in a charity shop and started a two-year course in Ennis Education Centre. Clarehaven supported me in court, and a legal settlement from my part of the family home allowed me to buy a small house in Ennis. I started to work and took up playing piano, which I had always wanted to do. I have never looked back. Wonderful things came my way, and I spend time now with my children and grandchildren here and abroad. I hope me telling my story is of some help to women who are in a dark place living with a violent person. And I'd just like to leave you with this thought. Be true to yourself. And most of all, go gently with yourself. That brilliant book, Light on the Horizon, will be available to buy in selected Clare, Limerick and Galway bookshops in the Winding Stair Bookshop in Dublin and online at the Ennis Bookshop and the Winding Stair. So do support them and their brilliant work. That's all we have time for. You can contact us by email on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast or on Instagram and Twitter. Podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.